How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Mass gatherings such as concerts, rallies, and various special event types have always required a medical standby component. Pre-planning for events like this will always vary in scale based upon size, venue, climate, and certainly other pertinent factors. 99% of the time, these events go off without a hitch. Typically, there will be some minor acuity cases that are easily treated inside a medical aid station or a tent. On the heels of the World tragedy in Houston, questions arise as to the 1% of the time when things go terribly wrong. The question is simple. Are we planning for the 1% and if not, why? Joining me today to answer this and many other questions on event planning and response is Andy Caruso. Andy is the president of 503 Safety Consultants, specializing in event medical planning and coverage. He is also the safety officer for the New Jersey EMS Task Force, and he's the deputy EMS coordinator for the Monmouth County Sheriff's Office. Andy, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. I really appreciate you thinking of me. Andy, World is still fresh on our minds, and I know that the majority of concerts and large gatherings go off without a hitch, but this one didn't. And in your position, I'm curious, is what happened there something that you routinely lose sleep over? I have to say it is. And it isn't necessarily because we expect these things to happen, but we also do know that things, these things are going to happen. And regardless of how much we work and how hard we are uh, looking at all the, the different factors, there's always going to be an outlier, an outlier. I don't know a whole lot more than anybody else about Astro Astro World. I did look into it after the event happened. I read as much as I could about it to try and just see what we could do better. Uh, I also do provide a lot of service for Live Nation, the same concert promoter. So I also was very curious to see what their take was going to be on the whole thing. Um, I don't want to be specific about that that particular event, but there are things that we could learn lessons from. And there are certain things that we do have to be concerned about like crowd crush and the crowd surge um, and being being sure that we're properly prepared. And I'm not saying that they weren't, but we have to make sure that we have all of our assets in place and we have an actual plan that we could even potentially practice before the event occurs. You have this unique responsibility of, of planning for these events and then executing the service line for these types of events. And, you know, you're very specific to here in New Jersey, specifically to one venue, which is an amphitheater, a larger size. And I'm curious if you could just take us through what the planning process is on your everyday type concert. Maybe take us through what the the capacity is of that venue specifically and what goes into it, you know, the weeks, months beforehand. Okay. So yeah, 503 Safety Consultants is a private organization, a private company that provides simple planning, uh, risk management, and the actual ex- execution of safety services like EMS and sometimes even security. 
What we do, though, is we look into the, the potentials and we look at these events as they're coming and what we can expect. So for the PNC Bank Arts Center, my main focus and what I assume mainly what you wanted to talk about today, it's a 17,500 capacity venue in central New Jersey, right off the Garden City Parkway. And we have anywhere between 40 and 60 events per summer. And it's specifically summer because it's mainly an outdoor venue that does, uh, by the way, serve alcohol, which is a, a major component in the planning process. And we do have a plan all the time. So most concerts are the same thing. Most concerts are uh, a specific demographic. We get a lot of country shows. So we kind of know what we're expecting at these shows. We kind of know how the crowd's going to behave. Uh, we kind of know how much beer we're going to sell. So all of that plays fact, plays into the whole major plan. So I have a Boilermaker template for an incident action plan. And we just change the names. You know, we, we, we fix the fill in the blanks based on, on ticket sales, on previous experience with that particular act. So they've been at three other shows, uh, maybe three other shows for the season so far. And, and those venues report what kind of, what kind of activity, activity they've had. And we, we kind of plan against that. So we may learn that we need to have something, something odd. So we may learn that for a specific act, we need to have extra EMS providers at a second stage on the center of the lawn, because there's going to be a stage release and the guitar player is going to go onto this weird stage that they build on the fly. And he's going to play a song or two. And then he still has to travel between that stage and the main stage. So we need to provide security for that. We need to be, be conscious of things like, like a crowd push on the lawn because 10,000 of the 17,500 are actually on the lawn. So it's general admission. So they can, which is, which has become a problem historically for a lot of these shows. Anytime that we've seen issues with crowd crush and crowd surge, it's usually because of general admission seating. So we have to take all that kind of thing into, into consideration. Um, we definitely plan and have an incident action plan for every event. Now, like I said, that incident action plan often doesn't require much work on my part at all because all of the players are aware of it. They know what to expect because we've exercised it and we've practiced it before. Uh, but a lot of times it's not necessarily the case. I'll give you an example. We uh, Live Nation provides uh, shuttle transportation, ground shuttle transportation between the local train station and the concert venue. So it's a great thought because it keeps people from drinking and driving. They take a train from their local train station to the the one closest to the venue and they get on a bus and they move from point A to point B. Great. They're not leaving the concert intoxicated and get on the road. We're probably saving lives doing that. The only problem is that that invites a lot of underage drinking. So with that, we have to adapt. So shows that we know that are going to bring a large underage attendance we have to staff appropriately with security as a as a agreement between the local municipality and Live Nation. Uh, security, we put toilets there. We put um, a water truck sometimes, depending on the weather. And we have EMS on site, sometimes three or four ambulances, which may seem like overkill. But if you think that we have a sold out show that at that point may be over 17,000 people, and even if 10% of them go by 
by public transportation, we're going to have a lot to deal with on our hands. And a lot of times these are underage drinking kids. So they're getting themselves intoxicated on the train. And by the time they get off the train, they're they're not even able to walk to the bus. A lot of times the train stops at, at stops prior to hours and the local EMS is responsible for taking these kids to the hospital. And then they get to our stop and sometimes they're not even able to get from the train to the bus. So we have an ambulance right at the platform to take these kids to the hospital. We've had events where we've taken 15 people to the hospital uh, just from the train station prior to even getting to the concert. And I would imagine that, like you say, you know, a lot of this has to do with alcohol and underage drinking and also some environmental factors with heat and dehydration. Typically, do you have medical tents set up or you have medical stations set up throughout the venue? We do. And depending on the type of event, it depends on how we do that. For a typical concert that's just everything indoors inside the fence line, we have one specific uh, medical treatment area. And for a smaller level concert, that medical treatment area is right outside EMS station. So that EMS station is a very small room that we keep our equipment in and we have a couple of desks and, and it's our typical command post for EMS. Um, but we don't treat any patients inside there. It's just not equipped for that. But what we do have is a is tenting that goes right outside of there. And for you know, just I just saw an advertisement for it. So the REO Speedwagon and Journey show that's scheduled for 2022 is the type of show that will just treat people right outside, right outside in that station. And we'll see four or five people throughout the course of the night, anything from alcohol related emergencies to typical medicals. Somebody's having an asthma attack or whatever it is. And we'll have EMTs uh, and potentially paramedics posted at that, at that treatment area. But we'll also have at least three different teams of EMS providers strategically located so that if there is an incident, they can get to it very quickly. And I often say this is a numbers game. So if you have, say, 10,000 people at this concert, and a lot of them, by the way, may be elderly. So there's a good likelihood that you're going to see people that have medical conditions. They're not used to being out in the heat. Um, They exert themselves by going up and down big flights of stairs. So we may have slip and falls. We may have cardiac issues. So we want to be able to get to them quickly. And I often joke about that. You know, when I get back to the numbers game, we're having 10,000 elderly people in one place. Statistically, somebody's going to have a heart attack. Somebody might even die. So we've got a really great track record at PNC. And we, for some reason, all of our cardiac arrests walk out of the hospital. So the last four that we've had have walked out of the hospital. And we're pretty proud of that. And I don't think it's anything about my guys being you know, outstanding stellar performers, because I think you get, you can only work with what you're given. Um, But I do think it's about getting to these patients quickly, getting them shocked quickly if necessary and getting them to the hospital quickly. Absolutely. And it sounds to me like it's a well-oiled machine in the way that you're planning because you've been doing it so long. You're familiar with the terrain. And we were talking offline. You have that luxury, right? In, in a way that certainly it's not easy, but some of these outside venues that go nationally and they go venue to venue, they don't have that luxury where they're familiar with the outside agencies and the resources and they don't have those relationships. And I'm curious from your perspective, these things are in place. They're almost cookie cutter, right? You know, for a lack of a better term, they're cookie cutter as to how you plan out your everyday routine type standby. But Andy, what happens when the 1% hits? When you have to hit the button, you know, how is that determined and what does that look like? So you make a really good point with PNC, 
Uh, I've been there for over 20 years. I know all the people. I know all the key players. I know all the local providers. I am part of this, that particular county's emergency, Office of Emergency Management. Uh, I've been working with all these people for a really long time. I know who to call. I know how to get the right resources. And that's it's really simple. And we've practiced it. We've had our exercises. Um, we've had disaster drills and, and it works out pretty well. I'm not saying that it's always going to go perfectly, but on the occasions where I'm called by a specific concert promoter and I do their work for them elsewhere, whether it's within New Jersey or outside, um, it is a real challenge. And I suspect that this is kind of what they faced in Houston. We have a, a, a global company that travels from place to place and provides the same service and it works really well. So for, I'll, I'm, without pointing any fingers at anybody else, I'll say for me particularly, um, I know what I'm doing, but I know what I'm doing and I could set the stage for a very simple event where it's a, it's a county fair and we have, you know, three or four ambulances and we strategically stage uh, treatment areas or pop-up tents and we have first aid stations and we have cooling stations and all that kind of thing. And that works out really well. I could do that in my sleep and I could be, it could be impeccably done. The problem is, like you said, if that were to go sideways, if some, if there were a stage collapse, like there was at the Indiana state fair or something like that, how is that going to go if it just happens at the at the you know drop of a hat? And the answer to that is really simple. You have to have an incident action plan. And I could write that that plan again based on plans that I've written for other events, and it's easy. The problem is that's only what's going on inside the fence line. It's got nothing to do with what happens when I need more than the 12 EMTs and a doctor or a nurse that I happen to have on site, which you know, an event like that is going to require that. So Prior to this event, I have to do my homework and people may think that I charge a lot of money for, for the work that I do because it's a one weekend event. How, why is it worth that much money? And they don't really understand that I have to do a lot of work prior to the event occurring. So I have to find that fire chief, that EMS chief, the police lieutenant captain, whoever is responsible for their operations. The, I have to interface with the the private security company, with maybe park rangers, um, you know, health department, any, all these things and all these items have to be involved in the incident action plan. And people don't really take into consideration that we have to talk about weather emergencies and contingencies for that, just like they, where they went wrong in Indiana when the stage collapsed, uh, that there just wasn't a plan. There was a plan, but nobody had decided in advance what would happen if weather is coming and we have to decide whether we're going to end this concert or not. In their particular case, they, they were talking about it, but nobody took the initiative to say, you know what, we all think this needs to happen, but we need to put this concert on hold. So in places that I work, we have this predetermined, who is going to decide it? And I did read a little bit about the, um, the Houston event, and it was in the plan that somebody would decide when to stop the show and all that kind of thing. But it's based on an agreement between four or five people. And that's great. But at the end of the day, it should be like air medical services. One person says, no, everything should stop. Yeah. Let's be honest. You're bridging two different modalities here. You're bridging a pre-planned event and you're taking that and introducing a mass casualty response on top of that. Right. So when you do that, when you do that with anything, it's going to be difficult. But when you have chaos ensuing and now you have to introduce that response element 
into that pre-planned platform, you need a very, very strong command structure. And that's not always easy. Fact of the matter is, like you just said, you have to make all of these notifications to these specific points of contact. And if we're being honest, it's not always taken very seriously because we kind of become complacent until something hits us in the face and it wakes us up. And the Houston event, it was just one type of event that wakes us up to say, hey, are we doing everything that we need to do when when we need to hit that button? You know, hopefully we never do. But if we do have to hit that button, are we planning for that type of integration? Are we planning for the ingress and the egress? Are we planning for the age old complicated mess of communications? And that means face to face communications. And it means on the radio communications. Are we interoperable? We have spoken about this since 2001. And we still find ourselves in the same difficult position of struggling with interoperability. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And one, you say an incident like this wakes us up, and you're absolutely correct. It is a wake up call. When things like this happen, it, it kind of brings us a little bit closer to the edge and it makes us a little bit more vigilant. The only problem is, Mike, in the concert business specifically, I don't want to say about sporting events or anything like that, but in the concert business, it's very revenue driven. And we may wake up, but how long are we awake for? And that's that's always my concern. So I get made fun of to a point that I'm called an alarmist and things like that when I go to my venue and say that we need concrete barricades to keep from the potential of a, a ramming incident. And I kind of get laughed at because nobody, that's not going to happen here. Well, no, it, it is going to happen here. Or it could happen here. And we need to make sure that it can't. So because everything is so cost driven, it's very easy to put these things on the back burner and safety and emergency medical services are very often brought very far down on the, on the list of priorities. And, you know, I, I could give you an example of something like um, something that you know, you know a lot about is a, a specific festival concert event that travels the country, right? This particular concert has been to New Jersey every year uh, for say 20 years, right? And we know what to expect. Um, I've actually gone as far as to get all the data from every one of these events, even though it's been at three different venues. But when it comes to mine, now, now it becomes my, my responsibility. And I've presented to them three or four years in a row what I think needs to happen. Now, these guys, they set up their, their stages and everything day of show. So they get off the truck at 7 a.m., they wake up, they wipe their eyes, and they start building stages. And they don't decide. They have a tentative idea based on Google Earth of where they're going to put stages and all that kind of stuff outside. But I sit there and I wait at 7 a.m. to talk to the stage manager and say, listen, the two out of the seven stages, the two main stages should be in this area. You could use the same real estate, the same distances, uh, because they're on grass instead of blacktop. And they say, why does that matter? And I'm surprised that they don't realize why that matters. And I say very simply, I'm now I'm ready because I have this information. I say, well, at least here in New Jersey, I've found that we've had 30% higher rate of patient volume when the main stages are on blacktop as opposed to the grass. We have crowd surfers that, that land on their heads or break bones. Uh, we have the heat 
that is radiating off the blacktop on a day like today, and it becomes a problem, and it's going to bring us 30% more, more patients. And they say, okay, we'll take that into consideration. And guess what happens? So that's not even something that costs money, and it, and it doesn't go the way I expect it to. So we, we want to wake up, but we don't always stay awake, I guess, is the problem. Now, I'm sorry, I kind of got off on a little bit of a tangent because you asked me about interoperability and communications. And I could tell you that the problem is whenever you have a private entity like my own or like one of these companies that provides event medicine, and there's many of them out there, um, there the challenge is always going to be that the demand of these pre-planned events is going to exceed the capacity or overly tax the local agencies, and it's going to require assistance from the private sector. Um, but with that private sector assistance, you can't easily predict the quality, the experience, the background, the skill level of not just the providers, but the leadership as well. And everything happens on a budget. We know that we get what we pay for. And we can't expect that people are going to come with interoperable radios, with a, uh, a command post structure, whether it's a trailer or like an office trailer, it's going to be a a fixed brick and mortar place. They don't necessarily think of that kind of thing. So they don't necessarily think that they're going to have to have a nice, cool, um, climate controlled, well-lit, clean room that is going to be a unified command post. I could tell you that at a lot of these events prior to the event actually happening, I'll bring up an operational meeting and say, well, where is our unified command post going to be? And I'll have the lead law enforcement person tell me, well, we weren't planning on doing that. We're going to be set up over here in our in our command truck. And we're going to have EMS is going to be working out of the back of this fire truck. And, you know, we'll be able to communicate with each other by radio. And then I try and explain that it's really more effective if we can do face-to-face communications and, and we could have four desks in one room and everybody could be in the same place. And then I hear things like, well, that's not how we do that here in this town, whatever. So that interoperability and that communications ability is really going to be difficult. Now, it's a little bit easier for me at the PNC Bank Art Center because, again, I know the players. I know who to call. So if I need traffic diverted so I can get more ambulances or bigger equipment like a mass casualty truck or a medical ambulance bus or something like that. And I need to close off a, an incoming lane, an inbound lane. I can, I know exactly who to call and I'll get it done very quickly. Uh, maybe that's not the official person who I should call, but it's still somebody that'll get it done quickly. So when you're somewhere that you're out of your element though, you may not be able to do that. So I wouldn't know who to call if I was in Houston. Yeah. And, 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 you know, listen, we're not going to come up with all of the answers today, but it's just interesting to get your perspective on this because truth be told, there's still a lot of work to be done. And anybody that thinks that they know it all or they have all the answers, or they're, they're just sadly mistaken. Truth of the matter is we learn on this job every single day and it's certain events like this, Sentinel events, which redirect us and, and, and help us to be better uh, for the next time. So, Andy, I really do appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your thoughts on this. And I think really ultimately what it is, is we need to we need to understand that these events are, are going to happen. They have happened to say that, you know, things like, oh, that doesn't happen here or it's not going to happen here is just a very, very antiquated way of, of believing and thinking of things. You know, we didn't think that planes would fly into the World Trade Center either. And we didn't think that we would have mass uh, shootings in schools on a weekly basis, but but they're here. And so we need to start to prepare ourselves and, and the responders as best as we possibly can so that we can 
save as many lives as possible. And if that means getting into the same room and writing plans, but the plans are only as good as the shelves they sit on unless they're exercised. And so that is something that we really need to start focusing on more. And the integration component and the communications component is always going to be a shortcoming, but we know we have to work on it. And Andy, I really do appreciate you bringing this insight and continuing to drive this type of venue of event medicine and mass casualty response forward. So Andy Caruso, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Mike. I really appreciate you listening to me talk about something I'm so passionate about. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Mike McCabe. We'll see you next time. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 